0: Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 24, these are the words of God. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness Filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again. Because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Throughout today's message, I want you to consider one simple question, and I want you to, uh, if you're a note taker, I want you to be jotting down your answers to this question, and that question is, what makes for a great church? That's the question. What makes for a great church? I taught a series on this a while back, albeit from a slightly different angle. Um, Our goal then was to differentiate a great church from a big church a great church from a big church. We all know that just because something is big, something is popular, or even that something is efficient and effective in its mission, it doesn't make it a great church as per God's standards. But it's also worth noting that just because something is small, just because something has uh, humble roots, if you will, it also doesn't make it a great church either. In the matter of God's church, greatness is defined by our adherence to what God alone has commanded. It really, um, I hope you know this, uh, there isn't any room for our opinion. (laughs) Uh, It's not that God doesn't care about us. It's not that he doesn't listen to us. But God has a plan. He has a desire. He has a, a set of standards. And those standards are what we should go to when we define greatness. So today, I want to revisit this question, but this time in light of Romans chapter 15. It's my conviction that as we go through the points today, as we go through these 10 or so verses, that we will, uh, we will all arrive at the exact same simple yet profound answer. Uh, scripture communicates many ideas about the church. For example, we, we learn that uh, the church has a particular structure. The Bible talks about uh, the church's discipline and and particular ways that that happens. Uh, The Bible defines what leadership looks like inside of the church. And although these are vitally important to the existence of a great church or a a godly defined church, they are actually means to an end. They're they're, uh, instruments for building a great church. Every great church without exception will operate according to God-ordained structures. But it is possible to function like a biblical church and not actually accomplish the goals of a biblical church. I hope that you uh, will understand what I mean by this in a second. In other words, it's possible that a church can have all the right structures. We can, we can, uh, you know understand the sacraments, and, and, and do these things in the right way. Uh, uh, churches can have all the right leadership. We can understand how leadership works according to God's word. We can understand what God says about gender and all of these different things. Those are all important uh, components. But we can do all that and yet still not do it God's way. Do you know that this, this is true? Think about the Pharisees. They, they're the perfect example. Perfect example. They checked all the boxes, in so much that there were boxes to check, but they checked all the boxes, and yet they, they missed the point entirely. And so as a church, if we're not careful, uh, we, can, we can think we're doing it all God's way, uh, all God's way, and, and we can miss the point. So, so in our question of what makes for a great church, what we're really asking is, what does God want? What does God want? How does he define a great church? What does the scripture say about a truly great church? So uh, before I jump into all of this, I want, to, I want to ask your favor on something, and that is I want you to answer this question as we're going through the text today in your notes or whatever, uh, maybe in your cell phone, maybe in your mind. Uh, if the answers that I give uh, match the answers that you arrive at, send me an email, send me an email. I can't tell you how encouraging, how encouraging it is as a pastor to hear that God is speaking to you and that he's speaking to you the same things he's speaking to me. It's also highly encouraging as a pastor to see that a church is actually understanding what the scriptures say. We live in a culture that makes the scripture say whatever it wants, but it's a really amazing thing when we come to these conclusions and we go, wow, this it's clear. There it is. Okay. So if you come to the same conclusions as me, send me an email uh, and tell me as much. Uh, if you are listening to the scriptures and you're seeing things that make for a great church that are beyond what I share... Send me an email as well because it is a tremendous thing to see uh, insight from you guys and and how that might uh, further my understanding of what we're learning. As a great church. So I just I ask that in favor of you. So, uh, as we answer this question, I want to share a few observations regarding Paul's relationship to the church in Rome. And maybe you have thought about these things, maybe they've slipped past you, uh, but nonetheless, they'll be really encouraging, they'll be helpful to you. I believe that the observations uh, that I have will speak to what a great church looks like. Okay, so we're going to see pieces of a great church along the way. The first point is this for note takers. Paul has never actually met the church in Rome. Paul has actually never met the church in Rome. He wasn't the person who planted the church in Rome. It's really important to, get to see this. According to church history, nobody actually knows who planted the church in Rome. However, most theologians assert that the church was a product of Christian Jews and Christian proselytes or uh, converts to Judaism who had returned home to Rome after their conversion on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, Jewish people from all over the world had come to Jerusalem to celebrate a festival called Shavuot, or uh, the, the Feast of Weeks. And as we know, based on Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God fell, and we we call that Pentecost, right? And so Pentecost happened, and immediately after the Spirit of God fell, uh, uh, Peter and the 11, this is a really important piece of the story, but Peter and the 11 stood up and proclaimed a gospel message. I think that is an amazing view of somehow all 12 apostles, Judas had already met his end by this point, and Matthias had been elected as the 12th, and so Acts tells us that, Judah, or that uh, Peter and the 11 stood up, and they proclaimed the gospel, uh, and on that day when they proclaimed the gospel, about 3,000 souls were added to the church. How many of you like that for a church meeting, right? Or or maybe that's a good evangelistic meeting. So 3,000 people were added to the church that day. But Luke even records the origins of those people who were converted or those people who had heard the good news in verses 9 through 11. And among all those listed, he actually says there were visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. And proselytes in this context was converts to Judaism and had come to celebrating this great Jewish feast, and then they had uh, been apprehended by the Spirit of God. What a powerful picture. So the thought uh, among most theologians is that these new Christians went back to Rome, and the church, or churches, because there's a really strong case that we can make for uh, this being multiple churches throughout Rome, uh, the churches were established. It seems more than just feasible. That actually seems like the likely situation. But my point for today is that Paul has still never met them. Paul wasn't the guy who planted the church there. In Romans chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, we see it. Paul writes this. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Now look at verse 10. This is where it's found. Always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now, at last... Or finally, finally, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. He's never actually succeeded in getting to these people in Rome. So he's longed to be with them, but, but never been able to be present. Romans 1.13 confirms the same point. I do not want you to be unaware, Paul says, that often I have planned to come to you, and there's the line, and have been prevented thus far. Paul has been prevented from getting to these people over and over. Romans 15, 20 actually tells us why Paul has been prevented. And I, I absolutely love this. It's actually going to lead to one of our first points in what makes for a great church. In Romans fifteen twenty, Paul says, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, They who have no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. But look at verse 22. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. So why has Paul been prevented from going to the church in Rome? Why why is it that he's never actually seen them face to face? He has a job. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He has a responsibility to plant, uh, basically, the foundation of Jesus Christ in every ear that has never heard of the name of Jesus. And he knows... Somehow he knows that there already is a foundation of Christ being planted or that has been established inside of Rome. So Paul has never seen them and he's never seen them because he's busy he's never seen them because he actually has work to do. So number one, Paul has never met these people, and that is because someone else, again, laid the foundation of Christ there. For any leaders in the room, this is our first principle of what makes for a great church, and that is that a great church doesn't require our fingerprints. Rome was a great church. I'm going to make that case in just a second. It was a great church, and Paul had never been there. Paul didn't have his seal of approval on Rome, and it didn't require Paul's seal of approval in Rome. It doesn't require my seal of approval here at Pierce Point. The truth is, it requires God's fingerprints in order to have a great church. This gets back to the beginning of this, and that is that all of our definitions of a great church must be derived from the Word of God. They have to come from what God says, Otherwise, uh, otherwise we we might have a really cool organization. We might do very noble things, but we might miss the point entirely. So a great church has God's fingerprints, not a man's fingerprints. Number two, Paul has heard of these people, uh, and what he's hearing is very, very good. Follow with me. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 again back to Romans chapter 1 first i thank my god through jesus christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world what does it mean that their faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world what it what it doesn't mean is this, and this is important. It doesn't mean that, that the faith in which they have put their trust, that is just the gospel, is being proclaimed. Paul doesn't even need to acknowledge Rome if that's the case. All he would say is, hey guys, guess what? The gospel's being preached everywhere. But he's not saying the faith you put your trust in is being preached everywhere. He says your faith is being proclaimed everywhere. What he means by this, what, uh, what's so significant here, is that the trust that they've put in Jesus uh, is, is being lived out. It's faith with feet, as I like to say. And that is being noticed by everyone. Paul is saying that in their trust in Jesus, everyone in the world is talking about it because their faith has works. Church, we need to get back to the place where we understand what all biblical writers understood. And that is that faith without works is dead faith. It's a joke. You can, you can say till you're blue in the face that you believe in Jesus. But if you don't look like Jesus, you're lying. What a staggering idea. It was James who actually penned the words, faith without works is dead. But again, throughout the epistles, throughout the writers in the New Testament, we see that they all confirm this idea. Either faith has feet or it doesn't exist, church. So another answer to our question of what makes for a great church is that a great church has demonstrable faith. People see it. Amen? So in one context, a great church doesn't have the fingerprints of men. It has the fingerprints of God. In having the fingerprints of God, it has a faith that is actually seen by everybody around it. So when, when we say, what would Jesus do? People could equally say, or people should equally say, what would the people of Pierce Point do? This is the same phrase as Paul saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We should want people to say, wow, what is that church doing? Because they look just like Jesus. We want want to be around them. We want to see them. Uh, We want to to have fellowship with them. So our faith has to be demonstrable. Verse 9 of chapter 1. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, is being preached uh, in in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. So Paul's heard of them. Everything that he's heard is good. And he just talks about them and talks about them and talks about them. I love this. This may be, yet again, another sign of a great church in that a great church gets talked about. But please note what Paul is making mention of here. He is making mention of their faith. Just because a church has a good reputation in the community... Just because a church gets talked about, and even when a church gets talked about in a positive light, still does not mean we're doing it God's way. Please understand me. There are organizations masquerading as churches in our world, right? There are organizations masquerading as churches, and they do lots of cool stuff. It's very noble. It's very awesome. And yet... In the end, nothing is being produced for the kingdom of God. People are not hearing about the gospel. People's lives are not changing. I had a conversation with somebody just the other day. And they were talking about their friend who goes to a particular church that I know of. And, and they were talking about their friend and how their friend is just, uh, basically looks just like the rest of the world. The way they talk, maybe some of the coarse jesting and the, the nonsense that comes out of their mouth and, and, and the actions that they have. They, they went on about this and my mind just stopped and said, the church isn't doing its job. <laughs> that church isn't doing its job. Yes, people can be stubborn. How many of you want to raise your hands to volunteer for that job around here? Yeah. See, everybody raises their hand when I ask that question. But the idea is that, that you, can, you can have a great organization and it never create change in someone's life. Well, it's not really a great organization then. What you're, what's happening is you're being really entertained well. That's great, but that doesn't mean that you're being transformed. Into the image of God. So Paul, what he's taking note of is the faith of people. He's not going on and on about their band, although maybe they had a great one. A bunch of lutes and tambourines back in the first century, right? Okay, so nobodys he's not making mention of their band. He's not making mention of their preacher. That's not what makes for a great church. Those things should be there, I think. Those things are very worthwhile, but it doesn't make for a great church. He's telling the world of the faithful work of the Christians within that church and how they obey God. And when you think about this, the fact that Paul does not name names, man, humility is the only natural outflow of that kind of church because one person doesn't get a big head. One person doesn't get puffed up. Okay, So it's amazing how this works. So number one, Paul has never met the people. A great church doesn't require our fingerprints, only God's. Number two, Paul has heard of these people, and what he's hearing is very good, and that is that their faith has feet. Number three, Paul's writing and his desire to visit have separate reasons, and I want you to track with me because I think you'll learn something valuable here. Let's touch on why he wants to visit first, and then we'll move to the writing. First, Romans chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established now elsewhere Paul talks about wanting to be refreshed by the saints in Rome or wanting to enjoy their company but right here he says that he actually wants to impart something and specifically he says I want to impart a spiritual gift to you that you may be established well what in the heck does that mean What does that mean? Does it mean that Paul is a dispenser of spiritual gifts and he's walking around laying hands on people and giving them certain things? Well, that would contradict the rest of Scripture, which says gifts are given according to the will of the Spirit of God who gives them, okay? And Paul says, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. If he's the dispenser of spiritual gifts, he should have just dispensed it. That's actually not what he's saying, and here's why it's not what he's saying, Verse 12 makes it explicitly clear. It interprets verse 11. Verse 11 again, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Verse 12, that is. What's another uh, rendering of that if we were talking about this in our own common vernacular? What would we say instead of that is? No? No? We wouldn't say so that or we wouldn't say therefore. What we would say is that is or what I mean by this is or to put it in another way, this is what Paul's saying. So now that we understand that phrase right there, let's look again at verse 11 and 12. It's really cool. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. What I mean by this is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Here's how we need to read this verse. When Paul says that he wants to impart some spiritual gift, he's actually talking about his own faith. 1 Corinthians 12.9 tells us that faith is a part of that spiritual gifting uh, package that people can have. So he actually wants to talk about his own faith or share his own faith with them. Uh, And I believe it would be his faith with feet. So all the actions that God has done. He's boasting again in what God has done. It's important to remember that the word impart means to make known or to communicate. It does not always mean to bestow upon. That's not what the word impart always means. But people miss the meaning of the term, okay? And so he says, I wanna make known, I want to communicate to you my faith. Next, when Paul says that this gift is to establish them, he's not establishing them as a church, they already are a church. What he's saying is that he wants to encourage them. That's why it's paralleled in verse 12 with encouragement. So if we read this again uh, with all of that in mind, it might sound something like this. For I long to see you so that I may impart, I uh, I may communicate, I may make known to you my faith, my spiritual gift to you, that you may be established or encouraged What I mean is what I said, that I may encourage you or be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, yours and mine. Here's the third observation of a great church, and that is that a great church shares faith stories among other true Christians, and everyone is encouraged. When when you're a devout Christian, when you're a faithful Christian, and somebody comes to you and says, okay, so here's what Jesus did in my life, and here's how it's played out. It is an encouragement to the other person. We talk about testimonies all the time and the need for testimonies because faith lived out is encouraging to fellow believers. But there is a time when faith lived out is not so encouraging to fellow believers. And that is what we learned a couple of weeks ago. When the fellow believer is weak in their faith. What happens there is that you share your faith journey, you share what God is doing in your life, and because somebody is weak in their faith, they often judge you. That happens in the church. Isn't it a pity? It happens in the church. It, they judge you, and they, and they kind of uh, size you up and say, oh, I'm not so sure about that. What is at the root of all of that is, one, immaturity, but two, envy which are not things that are fitting for the people of God. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, transitioning into 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul actually reprimands the Corinthians for this very idea. He says, you guys are supposed to be spiritual people, but you're acting sure fleshly. Why do I know this? Because there's dissensions and strife and jealousy and, and anger among you. Why, why is that there? You see, the people of God are to be known by their faith, their faith with feet, and that should be encouraging to all of us. So Paul writes to these people and he says, I can't wait to be among you. I want you to see what God's doing through me, and I sure want to hear what God's doing through you. I've heard about it from other people, but I actually want to see, I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. I want to hear you tell me the truth. So church, listen, if you want to be encouraged, I know there's a thousand ways that people talk about uh, being encouraged, but encouragement uh, often gets conflated. I've shared this before. Encouragement often gets conflated with compliments in our world today, okay? So, so what we wanna hear is you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you, or something like this, but what we need to hear at times for true encouragement is, hey, let me tell you how Jesus has moved in my life. Let me show you what he's done for me. Let me show you what he's done in my family. You can be told all the accolades. You can be puffed up all that a person can puff you up. But tomorrow that will fade and you'll be discouraged again. But if you hear the truth of what God is doing in other people's lives and the promise that he wants to do it through you, it changes everything. It really leaves you with a great sense of encouragement. Okay, so we we understand why Paul wants to visit Rome. He wants to share his faith with them and theirs with them, and they'll be all encouraged or established. But why is Paul writing the letter? Romans 15, verses 14 through 15 says this. Turn, Turn back to Romans 15 with me. Romans 15, 14 through 15 And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. And we're going to spend some time on that verse here in just a second, because it is an amazing verse, and I believe the definition of a great church. But look at what Paul says. He says, filled with goodness, full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another, but... How many of you love it when there's a but... In every sentence. Okay. Now, the reason why we don't like the but coming is because we often, uh, we, we know that the but often is followed by just immense negativity or everything we do wrong or how much we're awful as Christians. How many of you would agree with that? You, you, you hear the but and you go, okay, brace yourself. But I, I want to give you a quick observation before we move on. Paul's never met these people, has he? He's never met these people, okay? He's heard about the people, right? What has he heard? It's all good, right? Because he's heard about their faith. He's heard about their faith. He's even talking about it. He's spreading this around everywhere that he's on mission. He's spreading around their faith. And then verse... 14 says, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Here's a, a really important interpretive method in understanding the scripture. When we write texts and when we write emails, we often get frustrated because there's no emotion in them, right? We go, How can I know what you're saying? I can't tell what you mean by this because it's not clear. And so what did we do in the 21st century? We invented emoticons. What a stupid idea. Anyway, so we invent emoticons. We say something really harsh, put a smiley face at the end, and that's supposed to make it all better. I really don't don't know how this works, okay? But here's the deal. Here's the deal. We've struggled with how to interpret this. But Paul has made it abundantly clear how we're supposed to interpret anything that he says that sounds even partially critical. He's never met them. He's heard about them. It's all good, and he talks about it all the time. There is no sense in which what Paul is about to say could be construed as negative. There's no way. There's no way. Paul has heard about these people, and all he wants to do is tell them something that he feels that they need to be, remember this, reminded of. In our culture, the reason why we want to do FaceTime or the reason why we want to pick up the phone or talk to somebody one-on-one is is simply this. We have forgotten the art of writing. Do you know that for eons of time, people only communicated through written word, okay? Face-to-face or written word, and guess what? They didn't flip out. Well, maybe they had hard times. Maybe they had misunderstandings. But this was the only way that you could write. Television, recorded voice, FaceTime. These are new inventions, church. The reason why we're awful at our text communication or our email communication is because we're awful at words. We're awful at language. We don't even know what we're trying to convey. And so it comes across as janky or harsh or whatever it is. So I just want to encourage you, spend some time writing. Spend some time writing. Get better at this. What we understand about the interpretive method of Paul's letter is that there's nothing that has given us cause to think Paul is being harsh. There's nothing to give us reason to think Paul is dropping the hammer on anybody. So think about this when you read Romans 3 again. When the Apostle Paul says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The way most pastors render that as they preach sermons, and maybe the reason they render it this way is because they know their congregation and it's different than Paul's people. But most people render it as all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, you dirtbag. That's, that's how it's rendered. But Paul says, I've never met you. I've never met you, but all I hear is good and I keep talking about you. So guess what? Just by way of reminder, all of sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hey, Gentiles, before you get high and mighty, before you get puffed up in your head, if God can cut out a natural branch, he can cut you out too. So please don't act that way. You, you see how the interpretive method changes drastically in how we're understanding the letter? Paul is not dropping a hammer on anybody. So he says, you're full of goodness, Filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another, but I have written to you, very boldly. I might add, you can be gentle and bold. You can you can care and still be bold. Trust me, I've made an art form of it. Okay, I've written to you very boldly, uh, written very boldly to you on some points, so as to and there's the word you need to remember. Remind you again, remind you again because of the grace that was given to many to you uh, from God how many of you set reminders on a daily basis you don't set them on a daily basis how many of you have reminders in your phones or things like this yeah thank you for actually uh, engaging with me anyway every appointment that we have scheduled everything that we do in life gets a reminder we clearly know the appointments there because most likely we scheduled it maybe somebody else scheduled it for us but we know that the appointment's there so but we live busy lives don't we and we need reminders. What about rules, though? Do you ever need reminded of the rules? Hopefully not in your cell phone. That'd be really weird, right? Text message while you're driving. Stop being a jerk on the road. Well, my father-in-law actually could use this. He, he tells us that he struggles with this. Anyway, I'm just throwing him out there. I pick on my dad a lot, but now it's time to pick on John Burke. Anyway, so my girls actually need this almost every day. Right, I've shared with you in times past that we have well-established rules in our house. Three really well-established rules that if anybody in this church asked my kids what the rules are, they will respond with the right answer, with what the rules are. Those rules are listen and obey right away, because I'm impatient and I want them to do it right away. Listen and obey right away. Keep short accounts. I heard somebody give a, a, a cool uh, version of this this week. It was actually Chelsea Pryor who uh, said that they have a motto in their house that says a lo- laundry. A load a day keeps the pile away. It's epic. Most of you all need to employ that. <laughs> anyway, a load a day keeps the pile away. It's the same principle as our short accounts. We don't load up the sink with dishes and create a pile. We put it in the dishwasher right away because ain't nobody got time for the chaotic mess that comes at the end of the day. Especially not mama who ends up being strapped with it most of the time. So we keep short accounts. I have an ulterior motive in teaching them that with dishes and with other things, laundry and other things. And that is that I want them to keep short accounts when they've wronged somebody. I want them to apologize quickly, and I want them to forgive quickly. It's short accounts. That's what we're all about. So one is listen and obey right away. The next one is keep short accounts, and the third one is ask questions, but don't question. Ask questions, but if you question me, it's not going to go really well with you, okay? Any dad in the room better know what I'm talking about. Although my daughters know these rules, they need reminded every day, every hour, every minute It doesn't matter. They need reminded. As Christians, we are absolutely no different. And sadly, God's word is even written on our hearts. So Paul's purpose for writing is to remind these Christians concerning some points. As we've learned over the past few months, those points include things like sin is the great equalizer. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That no one is justified by works, but instead in accordance with grace or so that it's in accordance with grace, we are justified by faith. We learned that God's ways are higher than our ways, and that, he, uh, and that what he does to bring people back to himself, there's only one way to the Father, that's Jesus Christ, but what he does to bring people to his Son, i.e. saving the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy, is beyond reproach. We are the pot. We can't say to the potter, what are you doing in that context? What are we, why would we challenge God's mercy? In view of God's mercy, what are we supposed to do? Present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul reminded the Romans that. We are to bear with one another in weakness, especially those who have little faith or no faith, the context would say. Make no mistake, this list can go on on and on. But my point that I'm getting to here is this. Paul wrote to remind the Roman church. Yet the Roman church that he's reminding is a people that are supposedly full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. That sounds like a pretty doggone good church. Yeah, it's because what he's saying is just a reminder. So here's all three clear signs of a great church. We've talked about the previous ones through observation, but here's the explicit ones. The, a great church is full of goodness. A great church is filled with all knowledge. And a great church is able to admonish one another. And I have to go through these relatively quickly for our time. Number one, a great church is a people full of goodness. Why does Paul assert, uh, why doesn't Paul assert that these people should just walk around uh, claiming that they're horrible, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked sinners? Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he say, be humble, get it right, you're a horrible person? It's become common in the church today, I don't know why. Why? But it's become common in the church today among some that Christians, in a very depressing sense, should forever view themselves as the absolute worst they could be. But the problem is, even before Christ, no theologian, except for a Gnostic, which was heretical, said that man is as bad as he could be. Listen, church, if we were as bad as we could be, ain't nobody'd be left. We'd have already killed each other. It'd be done okay? Nobody's as bad as they can be. But that doesn't mean we're not sinners. That doesn't mean we're not filled with sin. We all acknowledge, or hopefully we acknowledge, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is pervasive, church. I hope you know this too. It's impacted every area of your life. The way you think is affected by sin. The way you act is affected by sin. The way you love is affected by sin. All of that is true inside of our lives, But the idea that we should walk around browbeating ourselves is nowhere found in Scripture. It's just not what the writers say, and I defy anybody to show me otherwise. As far as I can tell, this is an overreaction, and it's an attempt to convince people, or to convince ourselves maybe, that we're always or perpetually in need of grace. You know what's sad about this? If we don't acknowledge that we need grace, there is no amount of self-deprecation that will convince a prideful heart of that truth. There's no amount of self-deprecation that will convince us of that truth. If, in fact, you call yourself a Christian and you're characterized by a prideful heart, you need to go back to the cross and learn the lesson again. You've missed the point of everything that Jesus did and said. Instead, the scripture says that although we still sin, 1 John 1, 8 through 10, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. God would be contradicting himself if he said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you're a little little's not no sinner. It wouldn't make any sense. He's still throwing out some sort of slight condemnation in this. I'm not saying that we don't need to reflect on who we are without Jesus. Of course we should. But we've taken it too far. In light of this, Paul declares that the Romans are full of goodness. Paul was way off on that. He should have said, you're full of wretchedness. But he didn't because he means what he says. Paul is also not contradicting what Jesus said in the Gospels, that there's no one good but the Father. Paul is merely acknowledging that the goodness that we are filled with as Christians comes from the Spirit of God. That's what Paul knows, and that's what we need to get back to. Please hear me. Staying humble doesn't require self-abasement. It requires understanding grace correctly. You need to understand grace correctly. Do we deserve mercy, church? No, because you can't deserve mercy. It's a contradiction, isn't it? You don't deserve unmerited favor. That would be merited favor. So we don't deserve any mercy. If we did, it's no longer mercy. It's no longer grace. But this doesn't require us adding ideas in the scripture that we believe Christ forgot to say. Sorry, Jesus, you you meant to say that we should beat ourselves within an inch of our lives. Second Peter, that's asceticism. It was, a, it was an old way of living. Second Peter 1, 3 through 8. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. When did that happen, church? The second we believed in Jesus. And he has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, one of which is the Holy Spirit, so that by them you may become partakers of, what, the divine nature? What what is Peter talking about? He says, having escaped, past tense, the corruption that is in the world by lust. Who is he writing to? Real people. He's not talking about heaven. He's talking about now. We've escaped the corruption uh, that is in this world by lust. It doesn't mean that we're not tempted. It doesn't mean that we, can, we don't still sin. But it means we have escaped. He said we've escaped. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. But Peter, I can't. I'm horrible, and all I ever do is wrong. That's not what the writers say. So he goes on and he says, uh, add to your self-control, perseverance, and perseverance, godliness. Godliness? And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For these qualities are yours. Are yours. We possess them. Are yours and are increasing. And they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Should the Christian walk around with arrogance and say, I am awesome, saved by grace, I'll do whatever I please. That Christian or supposed Christian doesn't understand the cross. But should a Christian walk around and say, because of the blood of Jesus, I am a new person. Yes, we absolutely should. Being full of all goodness is a product of God's Spirit. But just like all joy and peace that we learned about last week, which comes in believing, all goodness is present when we walk as children of the light. Look at Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the lord that's our mission in this life so number 1 a great church is a people full of goodness number 2 a great church consists of saints who are being who are filled with all knowledge now this one's tricky this is where paul uh, his reminder talk comes back into play just because a person needs a reminder doesn't mean that they don't know something isn't that right church we just need a reminder It simply means that we we, uh, have forgotten what our mission was or our plan or what our behavior ought to be. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. This is Paul talking to that really strange church in Corinth that was a bag of mess, okay? He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Does he really mean that? Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Even the Corinthians, whom Paul had obvious problems with, are filled with all knowledge, according to his verse there. So does this mean that they have all information that they've ever needed about God? Of course not. Ever since I was a little boy, my dad would tell me that God is as vast as an ocean, and I am as dense, as, inf- as finite, as small, as a thimble. Okay? And so even when I'm at my fullest, I don't contain all that God is. So I wrestled with that for many years of my life and I thought through that whole concept and I thought, but the scripture says I'm filled with all knowledge. How can these be? And then it kind of sunk in. that scripture says all of this is true in Christ Jesus. So what do you have to do with the thimble in order to be filled with all God's knowledge of that vast ocean? You have to toss that stupid thimble in. That's my life. That's your life. We have to just immerse ourselves in who he is. We've got to be all in church. So, this is who these people were. So, a great church is a people full of goodness. A great church consists of saints who are filled with all knowledge. And a great church is able to admonish one another. This is where it gets sticky. The term admonish here means to warn or to exhort or to call. But the literal definition of these words, I think, is helpful for our time today. It actually means to put in mind. To exhort somebody. To admonish someone rather is to put in mind something. Maybe they forgot or maybe you're just putting it in there in the first place. First Corinthians 4, 14 through 16. I do not write these things to shame you but to admonish you as my beloved children. A father... Puts it in the mind of his children. So Paul goes on and says, you have many tutors, but I become your father in Christ Jesus. A father doesn't just browbeat his children. A father doesn't just shame them and put them away. A father puts it into their mind what they're supposed to do. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but be patient with everyone. Even in putting it in mind in people's lives, even in correcting them, what are we to be? Patient with them. That's a really hard lesson. Second Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Shame has a very clear resulting quality. We we need to realize shame actually is a valuable tool. But look at what our heart condition towards that person who is uh, being shamed for a purpose uh, uh, is supposed to be. Verse 15, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish, but put it in mind to him as a brother. Make sure you treat these people as a brother. Kindness and gentleness uh, is, has to be a part of our correction. So what makes for a great church? This is the recap and conclusion. Number one, a great church consists of people full of goodness. Number two, saints who are filled with all knowledge. And number three, they're able to admonish one another. But here's the question. Is this us? This is the question that uh, governed the conversation in our elders group on Tuesday night. Is this us? You see, church, I care very little whether or not people think we're a great organization. I I don't care. I just don't care. I care first whether or not God sees us as a great church. Second, I do care about being spoken well of by genuine Christians. I want them to look at our church and see a people that are full of faith, but that faith has feet, and they see it, and they love to see our church. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we read of seven churches. All churches but two are reprimanded. All churches but two are reprimanded. The two that are actually commended are Smyrna and Philadelphia. The first is called to faithful endurance, and the second is commended for faithful endurance. One is called to it, and the next is commended for faithful endurance. This is the people that we're supposed to be, church. These are the people that we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be a great church. It does not matter if we have all the bells and whistles. It doesn't matter if we have a slide in Kids Point that leads to a dungeon in the basement where all the kids enjoy lollipops and suckers all the rest of their life or something like this. It It doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not we as a church are comprised of a people who are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and actually able to admonish one another. Able to encourage one another, able to correct one another, able to shape one another. So I hope that you're ready for that. I hope that you're eager for that, because uh, I believe that a great church will change the world. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at PiercePoint.org for more information.